On today's episode of the Cosmos Podcast, I'm joined in studio by Jason Diplock. As you'll hear, Jason has had a tremendous career in sports so far, having spent time with the Brampton Battalion, the Toronto Blue Jays, and for a few years, the Blue Jays' Florida operation, including being GM of the Dunedin Blue Jays. Jason has a wealth of knowledge about the sports industry overall and shares some great stories and lessons he's learned along the way, including how keeping things simple and practicing good manners can lead to both sales and career opportunities, the importance of being prepared because you never know when that five-minute chat can turn into a two-hour meeting, and the importance of being flexible and ready when the next great opportunity comes knocking. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Cosmos Podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And if you have any questions about what's discussed on the podcast, you can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, or by email at info at cosmosports.com. If you like what you hear, we'd very much appreciate a rating or a review. We hope you enjoy. We're recording. I got okay. Jason Diplock here in the studio at the uh, Cosmos offices. Morning. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to join the podcast. And um, yeah, really uh, glad you were able to uh, yeah, make it. Not a problem. Looking forward to it. Um, so I think maybe, you know, just the best place to really just start is, um, you know, we wanted to talk about your career in sports and, and, um, and just you know, the lessons you've learned and, and mm-hmm. what you found, you know, getting into the industry and everything. And also wanted to kind of dive into some some ticketing trends and things like that, get your, your perspective on them. But maybe the best place to start really is just where, you know, where did you kind of get your start in sports and when did, when did you know you wanted to pursue a career in sports? Yeah, for sure. So uh, so I grew up uh, not far from the uh, the studio here in Brampton and uh, like uh, like most young Canadians grew up playing hockey and developed the love of hockey and, and other sports. And Decided at a fairly young age it's something I wanted to do, and uh, again, like most young uh, <laughs> participants, I thought uh, you want to make it as a professional player and quickly realized that's not in the cards. But actually a bit of a, uh, I guess, somewhat tragic twist to the story was when I was re- relatively young, I, my father passed away. And just uh, before he had passed away, the, the, uh, the track I was going towards was a career in accounting. Uh, enjoy numbers and noodling numbers and so I was going down that path but then I did lose my father and after some soul searching for a year or two I realized you know life can be short and you want to do what you really love and so I went back to sports and trying to figure out how to get a career in it so um, so that's how I decided sports was for me now the trick was how do I uh, how do I make it happen and so um, my first stop in my in my career uh, happened by chance and as I share share this story a little bit, there's a there's a tip in there for for um, you know future prospective people who want to get into the industry. So I was working for the city of Brampton at City Hall, and I was working within the Parks and Recreation Department, working with a youth and adult, adult uh, groups, uh, scheduling and convening their their matches at night. Uh, and right around when I started there, the uh, the city of Brampton and the city of Mississauga were awarded uh, expansion OHL franchises. I thought that's great, uh, an OHL team coming to my hometown. That's terrific. I wonder, uh, I wonder if there might be an opportunity. And then shortly after the announcement, uh, they, had, they had said uh, they had named their coach and uh, and the president of the team, a gentleman by the name of Greg McNamara, and that uh, and that Greg was going to be setting up shop in City Hall, uh, where specifically we didn't know, but somewhere in the building. So God, I've got to I've got to meet this this gentleman and, and get my resume there. So didn't know how I was going to do that, but. Um, tended to get to work around the same time every morning, and I parked in the underground, 
And there was one morning where it was a pretty uh, rainy start to the day and parked underground and uh, got the elevator like I did every day. And uh, I held the door for a gentleman who was who was scrambling to get there before it closed and a little bit of elevator small talk. He got off at one floor and I got off at the next and thought nothing of it. And a day or two later, I stroll into the elevator and once again, this one gentleman's coming in behind me and I hold the door open for him and a little elevator small talk and uh, thought nothing of it. And I would say about two weeks after that, uh, we figured out that uh, the, the Brampton OHL franchise was setting up shop on the fourth floor, and I think I was on the second floor at the time. And uh, anyways, that the president was up there, and I was getting nudges from coworkers saying, "Get up there, go search him out, and get your resume in there. It's, it's your dreams, what you want to do." Well, as luck would have it, as I found the the office of where this gentleman was, and knocked on the door and, and opened it, guess who was guess who was behind the door? Is the elevator guy. <laughs> so uh, we had already had a rapport built uh, through our elevator small talk, and uh, I presented my resume, and um, yeah, in no short order, pretty much on the spot, he gave me a three-month contract with the hockey team uh, to start a Name the Team contest. And so I guess the, the moral of the story there is you never know who you're going to run into, and um, you know, having manners and holding doors for people and small things like that actually can, can pay off and give you a start. Uh, which it did for me. Uh, Greg hired me uh, on with that three-month contract, and uh, as I say, it was onward and upward from there. So, yeah. so your first project there was the name of the team contest. Yeah, so it was to uh, to engage the marketplace that uh, we have a franchise, and it's going to be starting. And I guess at that time it was about fifteen months, and we didn't have a team name yet. So it was a it was a data capture thing. I went to all the uh, recreation facilities within the city, had ballot boxes, and uh, once a week I'd go collect the names and put them into an Excel spreadsheet. And then uh, I think it was a three, no, I guess it was about a six-week campaign. And then uh, after the six weeks, the, we got all the results, and um, and uh, the battalion was the team, the name that won out. It was, I think we only had five people who voted that name and thousands and thousands for other names. But our owner secretly kind of liked the battalion and was really hoping someone would... Uh, would vote for that and so we had think again we had about five votes so so that was a that plus some other things uh was my start and then after the three months uh they hired me on full-time and the title at that point in time was the uh, director of uh, sales and marketing for the team but truth be told in those early years uh, i would probably spent 50 percent of my time helping out on the hockey operations side stan butler had uh, was getting prepared for his first draft and had uh, some scouts out there and they would meet uh, semi-regularly and I would just kind of compile notes and data and put it together for Stan from time to time and, and help them prepare for the first draft. So that was an absolute thrill for uh, a quote-unquote hockey guy to get involved with uh, with uh, a legend now in Stan Butler to uh, to just kind of see how it works behind the scenes and preparing for a, a major junior draft. So, um, so that was phase two for that job. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what some of the other uh, options were for, for team names? Oh boy, you're taking me back 25 years or so now. Jeez, uh, bombers I think was pretty popular. Brampton bombers, uh, brigades, uh, Steelers were in there, uh, but a lot of uh, names with B yeah. <laughs> through the double B connection. So, uh, but we did get thousands. I would say it was probably three to five thousand entries, and uh, as I said, there was only five battalion that came up and all of that. So. Uh, so good on those that uh, the voted. And, who, and the, the lucky gentleman that won the draw got season tickets for life. Um, and so he was he never missed a game. If I remember correctly, he had seats right beside the, the home bench. And uh, he was at every game, really diehard fan. So I'm glad that uh, someone like that won the award. Yeah. 
that's kind of I mean with our work with the with the Brampton Beast you know, yeah you know fast forward uh, a few years and it, it's funny that that same strategy you know the name the team contest to, to drum up some some interest in the team yeah. and and really uh, try to cement it as as the the home team and everything is still a strategy that that teams are using today yeah um, to 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 launch their teams so right right yep. same thing a lot of a lot of alliteration double B kind of yeah, yeah. suggestions yeah Brampton Beast yeah. ultimately ultimately one out yeah double B yeah good. So, um, I guess the journey with the hockey team uh, continued. Uh, so, you know, once we've named a team and we've had a draft, uh, we were very lucky to have a pretty marquee player that first year by the name of Jason Spezza, who, uh, who's gone on and still playing in the National Hockey League with Dallas right now, but was a bit of a phenom coming up. And this was before the, the quote-unquote John Tavares rule where exceptional players could play in the league early, but there was a loophole where you could play uh, as an under-underager if there was a team in your hometown. So interesting story here is uh, um, the Spezza family had reached out to, to Stan and ex expressed an interest to play for Brampton, but uh, as the rules were at the time, he would have to play in his hometown, which, uh, which was Mississauga at the time. And... Uh, uh, the Spezas uh, had so much faith in, in Stan and Scott Abbott and, and the battalion organization that they decided as a family to sell and move to Brampton uh, so that they could, in fact, Jason could play that, uh, that under underage year with, uh, with the battalion. So I uh, played a little role in helping facilitate that as someone that grew up in Brampton, kind of pointed him in the right direction in terms of some neighborhoods to look at. So that was a bit of a thrill. And I remember a young 14-year-old, Jason Spezza, just being a wide-eyed rookie in the truest sense. And I remember on game days, he'd be floating around the rink. And I remember one of the, the big concerns he would have is, was, was his bubble gum fix. He needed gum. He liked to chew gum. Uh, so, you know, part of my role is to make sure he had gum and, and <laughs> drive some of these guys as well to school in the morning. And all that. So that was, that was a lot of fun. So then, you know, we, uh, as we were getting ready for that first season, we had to build, a, build an arena. Yeah. So uh, what's now known as the Powerade Center was uh, – uh, the shovel was in the ground, the dirt was being um, excavated, and the building was being built, and that was kind of fun to see that develop and be part of that process a little bit. And a big part of my job uh, as getting ready for that first year as well was was selling the advertising within the building. So rink boards, in-ice advertising, um, all the backlit signage within the main bowl, as well as the uh, ancillary rinks and, and the concourse. So. Uh, I remember going into potential clients' offices and having nothing more really than a blueprint to say, you know, oh, there's going to be a sign outside the men's washroom, it's four by six and it's backlit, but you didn't have a physical location to take them to yet. Uh, so it was really a thrill to move off of blueprints and then see the stadium being built and actually bring people into the into the rink and then ultimately there for the for the first home opener. You, know, you mentioned some involvement in, in the hockey operations side and you know, I gather that, you know, that, that's a dream for a lot of people to, mm -hmm. to really work in in the sports side for, for a team. Um, but, you know, your path and, and you know, from what I um, picked up from my conversation with Joe and then with Ken a little bit as well is, um, you know, just being around the team, you know, the, the reason you're there is, is more the, the business side, the sales, the marketing, but being around the team kind of give you, gives you those opportunities to, mm -hmm. to try and help out on the, on the sports side. And then yeah. that can be a, a way in for, for a lot of people. It is. And I think that's part of the, the sizzle and the allure of working within the sports uh, industry. I think the majority of people who decide they want to work in sports have played sports or dreamt of being professional athletes, whatever the sport may be. And so to have the, the ability or the exposure to kind of get yourself involved on that side, albeit even at the with with the most minor details, was was a thrill. And you know, again, I was very fortunate because Stan was was very very good to me and very open, and he knew I loved hockey and 
and was very curious how things were going to work uh, as he prepared for his first season. So I was thrilled that uh, you know that he just kind of brought me along. I got to go on a, on a couple of road trips with him and watch players and uh, get a handle on what they look for in terms of you know the type of players they want. So yeah, that was that was a real real thrill. But you know, make no mistake that the job was focused on driving revenue for the hockey club and and getting the corporate community engaged with the team and uh, not so much ticket sales uh, in those couple of years that I was there. It was more uh, on uh, generating those partnerships and, and revenue for the club. But kind of, as I said, developed a pretty good relationship with Stan. So it wasn't, uh, wasn't much for me just to pick up the phone or walk down to the dressing room and ask him his thoughts on the game before, and he was very candid and shared that stuff. So that was an absolute thrill for sure. What would the size of the staff have been for a team, an OHL team? That had yeah, so back then there wasn't many. I think we had uh, we had a president, obviously a coach and GM, uh, Stan, and then we had, uh, geez, we had myself and Carolyn. So there was probably four of us full-time in the front office, uh, plus a president. So uh, all hands on deck, right? Everyone's doing, everyone had their official titles, if you will, but... Uh, when it came to game day, or any day for that matter, if something needed to be done, uh, if it wasn't on your job description, yeah, you got it done. So, um, so yeah, it was a very small uh, front office, but uh, a great group, and uh, I think we accomplished some really good things in those very, very early years with with the franchise. Yeah. Uh, so, so your next stop after the uh, the battalion was the the Blue Jays. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, so I figured, you know, when I'm working in junior hockey and it's going well, I'm really enjoying it. And so down the road, I'd love to, to work in the National Hockey League, and um, but that's going to take some time. But uh, surprisingly, after uh, a couple of years with the battalion, the president of the team, Greg McNamara, who I mentioned, he actually uh, ran into some old friends of his that he worked with when he was in the uh, the beer industry, and uh, one of those gentlemen's name was uh, Terry Zook, who at the time was the senior vice president of uh, sales and marketing with the Toronto Blue Jays. And this is 1999 now, <clears throat> and so uh, so Terry and Mac got together and just kind of regaled in some stories, and then eventually. Uh, struck a deal where Greg was going to leave the hockey team to join the Blue Jays as a director of sales. Um, if you can imagine at that time, it's 99, not too far removed from back-to-back -back World Series championships. The stadium's uh, just about 10 years old, so still relatively fresh and has some sizzle factor to it. But there was a work stoppage in 94, which hurt significantly uh, the industry of baseball. And so attendance at the uh, at the Dome was dwindling, and uh, Terry and uh, Gord Ash decided that we wanted they wanted to get a little more proactive and have people out there actually knocking on doors and making calls to uh, to get that season ticket base back to what it was when the place was selling out. So Greg asked me if I'd like to join him uh, with the Blue Jays and uh, at, at the professional level, which obviously had some appeal, but again, my heart was really in hockey, but uh, Greg was great. He said, you know what, just do this for a couple of years, and then you can make that transitional move to the NHL you'll be going from professional league to professional league versus junior to professional might be an easier jump for you so I said you know what great idea let's let's do that let's get into baseball now I was a big Blue Jay fan growing up again I'm from the area from the market so I uh, grew up loving you know Bell uh, Bell Mosby Barfield Jimmy Key was my favorite pitcher so it was you know after I took a breath and thought about it, I'm like yeah the Blue Jays I remember sitting in my grandparents backyard and listening to Tom and Jerry on the radio and uh, so it was a thrill. So yeah, so I joined the Jays in uh, in '99, and at that time it was just uh, an account manager of season ticket sales. And really, quite simply, there was uh, myself and three others, and our job was to reach out to existing season ticket holders and uh, uh, retain the business. 
And if we had some free time, was to hit the yellow pages and find some new ones. <laughs> so it was pretty simple. Uh, and so we did that that first year. And, um, you know, after that year, we quickly realized that about 90 to 95% of our time was on renewals and retention and service uh, and very, very little time on uh, growing the business. So uh, and going into year two, we decided we needed some some resources to help do that and maybe, you know, uh, a handful of us will renew and another handful will uh, focus on new season tickets. Oh, and then this group sales thing was catching a little steam back in those days. So we actually developed a little group sales department. So our team of four grew to, uh, I think it was about 14 in year two. And um, and so away we went at it. Uh, and I was focused on the renewal side uh, at that time. So that was a couple of years in. And then Greg uh, Greg left the Jays for some uh, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial efforts. And um, I decided to stay. It was a great organization. Uh, Gorda, at that time, we just had Gorda Ash and Terry Zook and Stu Hutchinson were the, the big three. We didn't have a president per se. And it was interesting times because uh, there was a lot of unrest in the market because the team was owned by Labatt, which were terrific. But Labatt was bought by... Uh, company called Interbrew out of Belgium. And uh, Interbrew's interest was the, the beer, the Labatt beer, uh, and that brand. And uh, Labatt owned some other assets. And one of those assets was this baseball team that, quite frankly, Interbrew didn't have a ton of interest in. So investing in payroll and winning and stadium uh, issues and whatnot wasn't on their radar. So um, there was a lot of scuttlebutt in the market about getting a Canadian owner and a true Canadian to lead this franchise back to, to glory days. So it was interesting to go through that, and of course, in 2001, I think it was, uh, Rogers Communications bought the team. Yeah. Um, and so we had a Canadian owner, which was great, Ted Rogers, a great Canadian, uh, leading the charge, and he in turn hired another great uh, uh, Canadian and advocate for all things Toronto, Paul Godfrey. And so, uh, again, in year three, we had new ownership and a new president and CEO in Paul Godfrey, and with that came some changes. If you kind of fast forward to, to today, mm -hmm. even in you know the last couple of months, there's been speculation about whether Rogers would ever consider selling the Blue Jays, and um, you know the the rest of the the major pro teams are really you know just down the street, owned by owned by the same kind of company, which mm -hmm. Rogers is, is part of. Yeah. Um, do you ever see kind of a day when when Rogers might choose to? to yeah, together with MLSC, you think so? I mean, I, you thought when they got together uh, and bought MLSC from the teacher pension fund that uh, that it was the start of some bigger things to come, and, and that necessarily hasn't happened yet. But uh, you're right, MLSC basically has all the professional sport uh, teams under their bailiwick, save for one, the Blue Jays. And as we all know and read, uh, content's a big part of running a media company, and the Blue Jays provide that. And uh, with the success they've had... Uh, the last few years, um, it's it's driven all sorts of uh, positive revenue results for other pieces of the Rogers media business. So uh, do I see a day where they become even tighter? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out because I think both are in the media business. And when I say both, I mean Bell, who's a big player at MLSE. So they all want those uh, all those rights, those broadcast rights, and who's going to get what. And it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah. Uh, so, so you mentioned part of your responsibilities with um, you know, in, the, in the account manager role, um, retention, and then when you had some chance, you know, picking up the yellow pages and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, so what, what, you know, what type of sales strategies really did you find were, were successful then that you think, you know, still kind of carry forward to today? To 
Yeah, I, I think for, for me going into it, and, and, and quite frankly, only having a couple of years of sales experience under my belt, it was just about, you, you hear this all the time, building relationships. And building relationships doesn't need to be any more complicated than reaching out and saying, hello, how are things going and how can I help you? It can be just that easy. There's not much more that it needs to be. Now, it can evolve into much, much more, right? It can be a rather lengthy, deep conversation about business needs and, and even into, you know, their personal areas. And you want to build those relationships. But for me, it was just reaching out and having the right pitch and tone when I introduced myself and truly caring about their investment with the team and hoping that uh, that we could do everything we can to make sure that uh, they were getting whatever return they wanted through that investment in season ticket. And sometimes that return is simply just enjoyment watching a sport. Uh, but in a lot of cases, it's a business ROI, right? I'm doing this because I'm hoping that this investment in tickets will keep my accounts coming back as I entertain them at games, or it's going to keep my staff happy as I entertain them at games, or whatever the case may be. But a lot of companies will truly try and measure that investment in, in season tickets and make sure that it's helping their business. If it's bought at a co- from a corporate perspective, a lot a lot of times it's a, just a personal buy for the, for the love of the game. So for me, my strategy was just be very, very diligent on um, uh, reaching out and being proactive. And if they said they wanted to talk to me in, you know, 14 days at 1037 in the morning when they get back from a trip to the Bahamas, I made sure that I reached out at precisely that time that I made that note in my uh, uh, my exp- spreadsheet and uh, and asked how their trip to the Bahamas was. Having that level of detail noted after every call was very, very important. And I think, you know, it separated me in the early days. Of, um, you know, I think in this industry, and if you want to get into into sales, I think, you know, having great organizational skills is a must. Yeah. Um, you know, being pleasant, having manners, having strong organizational skills, really that's what it boiled down to me. That's kind of who I am and who I was coming through, and it, and it served me well. So as I work with, with teams and, and people coming up, I think it sharing just that very simple uh, recommendation of, of, you know, manners and time management skills and organizational skills, it really just boils down to that. And if yeah. you've got a uh, a decent enough mind for the business. Um, I think just the, the way you come through and that relationship that you can build uh, uh, proves to, to benefit uh, positive business results. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of speaks to um, you know, your, your elevator story as well. You know, just yeah. Simple kind of manners, chit chat, and exactly uh, relationships built, and then yeah, uh, things come from that. So right, right. So there is you know you can't overthink it sometimes. Yeah. And really, it is you know in a lot of cases just the, yeah. the basics. Yeah, and and you know, and so following that theme forward, just kind of going back to the to the career and and uh, some lessons learned along the way. So we've got uh, local ownership, Canadian ownership, and and a great Trontonian and Paul Godfrey running the club, and um, and you know the, the business side of the Blue Jays was continuing to evolve and grow, and there was some opportunity. So after three years or so, um, you know, I was awarded an opportunity to be an assistant manager of uh, a few. Now, the ticketing business had, had kind of grown from just season tickets to season tickets and group sales, season tickets, group sales, um, and then uh, flex pack sales or mini plan sales. So we started to evolve a little bit. And uh, I put my hand up and said, hey, I'd like to help manage this growth and manage the additional staff we had. And uh, I was awarded that assistant manager job. So that was my first foray into quote unquote management. Uh, but, you know, the focus then was probably 50% still selling uh, as well as 50% of the time managing people and managing results and reporting on results. But uh, yeah, a few couple of years of that. But then uh, a gentleman by the name of Patrick Elster was brought on board and he came in as a director of ticket sales. Uh, now now we're talking about 2003 or four, I think, in and around there. And once again, he came in, he was an American and 
was new to Toronto and Canada. He'd, he'd met a, a lady who was from uh, from Thornhill and moved from Las Vegas up to Toronto and um, had been in the sports business years and years ago. Uh, and so anyways, he was part of our ticket sales team in, in, a, in the most senior leadership role we had at the time. And again, just introduced myself to him and built a bit of a rapport and um, and we had a pretty good, uh, a pretty good uh, rapport on day one, but um, there were some changes going on. And Patrick, uh, we got wind that Patrick was going to be elevated to a vice president role with the ball club. And uh, and I share this story only because as I drove home that night, I said, "Well, if he's the director now and he's moving into a VP role, that means there's going to be a director opportunity. So how do I get in front of that?" And um, so as I drove home and went to bed and came to work the next day, I figured, you know what? I've never really met Paul Godfrey yet. I don't, he's probably, we've seen each other in the hall and a, hey, how are you? But I don't think I've formally introduced ourselves yet. And then by this time, the company's fairly large. So, and the way the offices are down there at the, at the Rogers Center is everyone's kind of scattered everywhere. So it's not like everyone's in one main area where it's easy to strike up conversations. Anyway, I said, you know what? I don't think it would hurt if I just went to his office and extended my arm and shook his hand and said, here's me and who I am. And I would, if there's going to be an opportunity with that director role, I would very much appreciate being considered for it. And so I did it. So I went up, and he was uh, just finishing up a call, and I knocked on the door, and he, he was a, just a terrific man, welcomed me in and shook my hand. We had a formal introduction, and I expressed some desire to, to continue to stay with the organization and grow. And, uh, and I think if you fast forward mm, six months after that, when I did get the position, and there was a formal hiring process and interviews and all that, I think that taking the bull by the horn, so to speak, and being proactive and just, you know, shaking a hand and saying hello and this is what I'd love to do uh, served me well. And so I think that can benefit a lot of people if they've been in a certain position for a number of years and, and opportunities there rather than kind of wait to see how the process was going to flow in terms of uh, filling a particular spot. I think just going out there and being proactive and going to the ultimate decision maker and, and making a case for yourself uh, is a good thing to do. Yeah. So if you, if you can kind of remember back to when you're kind of deliberating whether whether you should do that or not, you know, were, were you nervous about it? Were, yeah. were you excited about it? Like what, what yeah, you never know, right? You know, how's it going to come across? I hope I come across the right way. I mean, I, I, I'm confident myself that I've always had an ability to get along with people and, and develop friendships and, uh, um, and resonate with people, be it professionally or personally. So I, I kind of knew I didn't think I was going to come across as a buffoon <laughs> by any stretch, but you never know. Was I going to seem overly eager? Was he going to be over-aggressive? Is he the type that would say, hey, just sit tight until you find out what the process is to introduce yourself? I haven't launched uh, this position yet, so what are you doing in here? You just you just don't know. Um, as luck would have it, uh, and to this day, I consider Paul Godfrey a friend, someone I can go to, and one of the best leaders I've ever met. Very, very approachable, and uh, and my calculated risk uh, paid, paid off because I think that's exactly what he wanted to see was someone take some initiative and um, and, uh, yeah, and we'd be able to develop a rapport from that very first conversation. So, but, but, uh, I was definitely nervous, uh, about, it. I wanted to make sure that uh, I wasn't shooting myself on the foot and, and, and I wasn't, so it worked out. Yeah. I, th- I find, you know, you know, speaking kind of, um, just from, from a job seeker kind of standpoint, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there really are, you know, a few different ways you can go about it. You, know, you can go about it the, the way, you know, your story alludes to a little bit proactive and, and help yourself stand out, but. You know, the, the alternative of, of just waiting for, for the process, you know, puts you as a, as a resume in the pile. And, um, you know, in some cases, people, somebody's going to win the job. But, if, you know, if it's just from a resume, it's, you know, the best candidate, mm-hmm. best resume, that kind of thing. But that that puts people at a, at a disadvantage. So if you, can, yeah. if you can take the bull by the horns, like you said, and, and yeah. help yourself a little bit more, then 
uh, those opportunities can yeah and I think there's a balance because I've you know sitting on the other side of the table many years later and and hiring for senior you know management positions um, some people can be a little too over aggressive right? right they make that initial introduction and you thank them for it and you have a conversation and then you tell them to uh, to sit tight and let the process flow out but uh, they follow up again and maybe again and again and that can be a bit of a turnoff, right? So, so I think being proactive um, and uh, expressing what your desires are and your goals are is 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 a great thing to do. But there is a fine line where you push a bit too hard. Right. So I I you know heed that caution. I think if you're out there considering that type of move. Yeah. Um, so so in this kind of your first foray into to management. Um, so at this stage, how many people are, are you managing? Yeah, so when I got the director position, we were we were uh, large, but getting much larger. But I think at that time we had, uh, I would say we had about 20 people reporting under me. So there would have been uh, three managers and then some account reps underneath that. So rather large. And, uh, you know, now we're, now we're in about 2004, I guess it was, roughly. Um, and uh, the team was still struggling and finding its identity on the field. We were making some gains year in, year out in terms of, season ticket growth, uh, group sales growth, introducing uh, mini plans to the marketplace. So, you know, we were we were celebrating, um, you know, relatively small wins, 3% lifts here and 6% lifts there. Uh, but, you know, we, we were in a big market, and the philosophy back then was is that we were in this massive market, and we had to go to the market. The market wasn't coming to us anymore. So we had to go out there. We had to reach out. We had to, to you know, relaunch the Jays, if you will, in the sense that, you know, we've got 81 games where the, the summer pastime here in this market, we are, continue to be a, Stroud, a proud Canadian franchise with a great history and uh, ownership and management's working hard to, to get us back to, to the quote-unquote glory days. So, you know, we, we quickly realized that, you know, that if we had some resources and we were hitting the pavement and we were making um, calls and conversations and letting, you know, our market know the, the various products we had, that there were there were fits out there. There's going to be fits uh, for people to engage and invest with us. So... Um, you know, by the time 2006 rolled around, which, you know, which was when I started a new chapter there, we were up to, Evan, I think we had about 60 account executives, a significant number, and supported by Paul, and uh, all kind of outbound, proactive out there. And uh, we actually, in season, we'd actually bring in a, like a night shift, if you will. So we actually brought people in on when we had home games uh, or even away games from, I think, from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. just to catch any interest from people watching at home and decided they wanted to call and inquire about ticket packages. And that was another dozen people. So we were getting rather, rather large, very large. And again, um, there was some merit to it. Again, the, the lifts were coming. Uh, again, 5% here, 6% there. Um, not uh, not getting us to sellouts by any stretch, but we were trending in the right direction. But as that was happening, um, and what we realized many years later is that expense side of the ledger was was growing and growing and growing, and the revenue wasn't necessarily following in a healthy enough pattern um, to provide the right business metrics for a franchise to go forward. So, which brings us to two thousand and six. Mm-hmm. And so uh, at that time, I'd been doing the director thing a couple of years and. Um, Patrick was, uh, was the vice president, so he was the number one in the uh, ticketing department, and I was, his, uh, I was the number two. And so, um, uh, surprisingly, I was in my office and uh, knock on the door, and Paul Godfrey and his son Rob Godfrey, who was a senior vice president with the team at the time, uh, showed up in my office, which never, ever happens. So I'm thinking, oh boy, 
Uh, I qu quickly looked around the corner to see if a third individual HR was behind them. Thank God HR wasn't there, so I figured, okay, I'm all right. <laughs> but uh, but Paul and Rob came in and you know said asked me if I wanted to have a chat, and I said sure, and and it was it was terrific to close the door and down in Florida in Dunedin where the team um, where the team trains in the summer, uh, the spring, excuse me. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Ken Carson who had been the director of Florida operations for a lifetime, 30 plus years, a day oneer with the organization, was the team's trainer back in the early days and then went down and ran things in Florida. And Kenny was approaching retirement. And so Paul and Rob asked, is that an opportunity you might be interested in? And I said, hold on, let me, you're asking me if I want to move to Florida full time and run, run the show down there and golf 12 months of the year. I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, very interested. And they also knew my wife is an American. So, you know, we as a family had contemplated over the years, maybe uh, looking south of the border for some sports opportunities. And uh, so here was a great opportunity to uh, to move south of the border and stay within the same organization. So I, of course, expressed some interest in it. And uh, about a month or so later, I flew down. This would have been in January. So spring training was ramping up in the middle of February, as it always does. And so I went down around the second week of February with the Godfreys. And Got a little tour of the play. I'd never been. So at this point in time, I've been working for the organization about seven years. I'd never been to Dunedin. I didn't have a clue what the stadium looked like uh, or the training complex looked like. So it was a thrill just to go down and, and see it, let alone possibly uh, uh, be able to um, to run things down there. So it's been a week down there. I got to know some people. Kenny Carson, uh, who, by the way, is just one of the most fantastic human beings I've ever met and still stay in contact with him now. He was uh, very gracious. You know, you have to be... I guess this is another little lesson I learned. When, when someone's run something for as long as Kenny has and you're ultimately going to come in there and take over, I think when you're in that role of taking over, I think you got to be super sensitive uh, to the legacy and the sweat that and equity they've put into uh, getting the operation to where it has been for years, and I was very respectful of that. So, um, so you know, before I actually got the job and was just meeting Kenny, it was it was it was great because you could see how passionate he was about the history down there and everything that happens to get ready for spring training and and the minor league team, the Dunedin Blue Jays, is also part of the the, uh, the high A minor league team. So anyway, went down to Florida, came home, and um, you know they made an offer, and uh, I sat down with my wife and my kids were relatively young at the time, two and four, so moving a family uh, wasn't as big a deal because they weren't in school. So. Uh, we said, yeah, we jumped at it. And so, uh, so yeah, in 2006, I guess it was August of 2006, I uh, assumed the role of Vice President of Florida Operations and General Manager of the Dunedin Blue Jays. And, uh, and away we went. We went yeah. uh, down, to, uh, down to sunny Florida and, uh, and uh, was running virtually everything that goes on down there. We've got two facilities. We've got a spring training season, a minor league season, a Gulf Coast League season. Um, there's stadium upkeep, there's tickets to be sold, there's corporate sponsors to be won, uh, there's showers to be kept clean, there's carpet to be replaced, uh, there's paint that needs to be refreshed on. Well, it was everything. Uh, what a wonderful opportunity, really, to just kind of take over everything and get exposure to everything uh, outside of tickets, which was which was great. And it reminded me of my uh, battalion days in the sense that, you know, the office and the structure down there was relatively small, probably about seven, eight of us doing a little bit of everything. Um, and so it brought me back to those early junior hockey days where, hey, we're smaller and um, everyone's got to roll up their sleeves and take care of business, including myself. If there was a rain coming on the day, the, the day of a game, we had to get the tarp on the field. We would all in our offices change out of our 
work clothes and put on our tarp clothes as we call them and run out there and pull tarp onto the field in the pouring rain and getting muddy and that was part of the gig so um so that was great and uh learned a lesson down there too so I had a lot to learn uh, in terms of running my first spring training and the first minor league season and everything in between and I think some of our listeners will be familiar with a guy by the name of Brian Butterfield, who was a third base coach for the for the Jays for years and is currently in the same capacity with the Red Sox. And glad that he's won some World Series with the Sox because he's a, he's a fine, fine man. But I'd heard the legend of Brian Butterfield when I got down there and said, Butter will be, uh, he'll be the guy that kind of um, sets the tone for spring training. He, not John Gibbons or Cito Gaston, sets the regimen for the boys and to get to loose and ready for the season but uh if you haven't had a chance to talk to him i'm sure you will and i said great can't can't wait look forward to it well it's the first official day where players report call it february 17th i think it was and i i like to think i get to the office early i think i got uh, to the stadium at about 7 a.m or so and had a message light was on my phone i said that's unusual because i was there relatively late the night before and cleared my messages but i'd had a message so I checked the message and uh, message comes through and it's time stamped for 4.30 in the morning or something. And I'm thinking, this is this is going to be interesting. And so I listened to the message and it was, Dipper, it's Butter, Brian Butterfield. Just want to let you know I am uh, just went through the stadium here and uh, a couple of things you should be aware of. I'm in the, uh, the home dugout right now and the phone that we use to call the bullpen, I opened it up and there's dust in there and we've got to get that cleaned. And then I was in our home clubhouse and shower stall number three had a little bit of grime up in the corner that needs to be scrubbed out as well. Uh, it's the first day of spring training. It's about winning World Series and championships and every little detail needs to be taken care of, including dust and grime and showers. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Welcome to spring training, kid. Look forward to working with you. So I said, wow, that's how it's going to be. All right. I, and so lesson learned. You know, I quickly... Uh, put a task for, uh, you know, uh, many months down the road where it's time to actually get ready for spring training and say that, you know, I've got to walk literally every single inch of these facilities and make sure everything is perfectly up to snuff because it matters. It matters to the players, it matters to the coaches, and just sends, sets the right tone for the season to be, that everything needs to be sharp, crisp, focused, because here's where the journey begins in spring training. You know, you play 162 games and ultimately a bunch of baseball in October and ideally November. And it all begins in the middle of February. And, and, you know, me and my team, we have to set the tone in terms of how we present that facility to these players. So that was a wonderful lesson to learn. And uh, uh, and I'm glad Butter shared that with me at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> so. yeah, perfect time for some attention to detail. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned your, part of your title there was uh, GM of the team. Yeah. So was that... Um, was that on the sports side as well? Like yeah, it's a great opportunity. So now we're exposure to baseball operations, like those early hockey days with yeah. Stan Butler. Now I get some exposure to baseball operations. Now, general manager of a, of a team um, sounds pretty flashy, yeah. uh, and it is. But in reality, within the uh, hierarchy of minor league baseball, really all it meant was is that you made sure that uh, buses and hotels were booked for road trips. <laughs> because you know, major league major league baseball teams have a very large uh, player development staff, and a guy by the name of Charlie Wilson, another great Canadian and a fantastic human being, uh, ran player development for the Jays for years, and someone I worked hand in hand with while I was down there in Dunedin. And so, really, Charlie and his team would dictate who your team's going to be and which players are going to graduate to Double A and which ones are going to go back down to Low A and everything in between. 
uh, with you know with some conversation with us uh, with the Dunedin team, but really it was Charlie and his team that would be at every game and would would suggest when players are going up and down. So, yes, I was a general manager, and yes, I was exposed to uh, baseball operations, which was fantastic. But it was really about booking buses and hotels. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then also, I mean, I guess the one busy thing that happened, quite frankly, was sending in player transaction information to the league. So, almost on a daily basis, players are going up, players are going down, players are are hurt. Um, placed on the DL. So there's a lot of um, paperwork, if you will, that goes into making sure that everyone's aware of that um, at the various league levels as well as internally within the Toronto organization. So, but, you know, it was kind of cool. You get to meet the players a little bit and the managers. And uh, I'll tell you, um, I became quite the meteorologist living down there for a couple of years because if you've ever been to Florida in the summer, you can set your watch by uh, the fact that rain's going to happen somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30 every day. So question was, is that how heavy would that rain be and how long would it last? And would your field drain well enough that you could get a game on at 7 o'clock as our home games were at 7? So I would, you know, on a game day, stare at my, my laptop and we had a, an app on there, if you will, that just showed weather patterns and, you know, is it going to rain and for how long and how heavy and so I'd spend the better part of my afternoon studying that and calling uh, our manager, Omar Malave, and letting him know how it was looking and letting the visiting manager know what it was looking like. And then once the umpires got there, letting them know. And so a pretty common part of the job was, as I mentioned earlier, it would rain. So we'd run out there, we'd put the tarp down and run back into the office and it might rain for 10 minutes. And then you, you dump the tarp, as they call it, you dump it uh, out into left center field. And then you, uh, uh, and then you prep the field and get ready for a game. Well, once the dump happened, you'd have to walk out on the field with the home manager and the visiting manager and make a determination if you're going to play or not. And, uh, you know, you can imagine the minor league season's long. It's a grind. It's not 162, but it's 140 days. These guys virtually play every single day. Yeah. And so there'd be a lot of conversations out there in the middle of the season. And once that rain leaves, it gets stifling hot in, uh, in uh, central Florida at that time of year. So you're sweating. Um, and the field that we had at the time didn't drain all that well. So quite often the managers would kind of make a case for, maybe we don't need to get this game in. You know, I haven't seen my wife and kids in a while. I wouldn't mind going home for some dinner tonight. And I mean, a lot of it was tongue in cheek, of course, but you know, your responsibility was to, to take the facts in and player safety had to prevail over everything else. And, uh, I don't think I really maybe canceled just one game, but generally we'd get the, the game in. But, uh, again, I keep coming back to the this this need to be personable and have manners and and respect points of view and so you've got to take the visiting manager and the home manager uh, and then if the umps were there by then the umpire to come out and just say hey this is our field and it's wet now but I know that within 17 minutes it'll be fine it'll drain and we're raking the field now and I think we'll be good to go by seven and um, uh, I, th I what I found is is that you know, each manager is a little different. Your pitch and tone has to be a little different, but you have to be respectful of the process and player safety and team needs and all that. So it was, uh, those were interesting days for sure. Uh, so look, working in minor league ball, again, very similar to, to major junior hockey, right? Small office and everyone does a little bit of everything. And uh, I really enjoyed it and it was a lot of fun. So, so how long were you down in, in Florida? Only two years. I didn't think we'd be down there forever, but by the time 2008 rolled around and Florida was just now uh, feeling like home, there was an opportunity to come back. And another funny story was it was a, uh, uh, this would have been in July, end of June. So this would have been about the third week of June. And uh, as I was just saying, Florida was starting to feel like home and 
we had bought a home and we wanted to uh, furnish our master bedroom. We had an old master bedroom. So we were, we were shopping in the afternoon, a place called Rooms to Go, like the brick down there. Yeah. And uh, we had picked out a master bedroom set. And so we were sitting at, at the desk with the salesperson and he's writing up the deal and just about ready to get my credit card out when my phone rings. And I see that it's an unknown number. And when I lived down there, only two people that called me had unknown numbers. One was Paul Godfrey, and two was any of my friends that were police officers up here that would call. So I had to take the call regardless. So I thank God I took the call, and it was Paul Godfrey saying, Jason, how are you? And I said, very good, Paul. And he goes, can you, can you get on a plane tomorrow morning and fly up to Toronto? There's some, some things going on. And I said, uh, wow, okay, sure, yeah, absolutely. Salesperson, hold off. <laughs> I could tell from that. I said, there, there might be something cook, cooking. So... We, uh, we walked away from the master bedroom set and flew up and there's some changes going on in Toronto and a shuffling of the deck and uh, ultimately there's an opportunity to rejoin my ticketing department that I had left only two years prior uh, as the vice president of ticket sales. And uh, the Cubbies were in town. I flew up on a Friday. We watched the game, talked in the, in the suite with Paul a little bit about uh, the position and uh, where things were going and called my wife that night and then accepted it on Saturday. And um, probably 10 days later, I'd thrown all the clothes that were on a clothes hanger in my back of my truck, my golf clubs and my hockey equipment. And, uh, and I set sail for Toronto. So <laughs> I left my wife and kids. They were going to try and, uh, and it was difficult because it's 2008 and the economy is not going well in the U.S., a lot of foreclosures and everything else, subprime mortgages and all that stuff was going on. We had to sell a home during these times, so it was tough. So my wife and kids stayed back, and I came up and got started right away in my new in my new role uh, while my family stayed behind. And so I, in 2008, assumed the role of VP of Ticket Sales and Service and rejoined the department I helped build, really, from 1999. And it was great to see some familiar faces and be back in my home country. And, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it was difficult the first three or four months because my family had to, we were apart. Uh, we couldn't sell our home. It was very, very difficult. But uh, Paul Godfrey and and, uh, and Roger's communications were very uh, helpful in trying to sell the home and make the dollars and cents work for us to come back up here. So, uh, yeah, so I joined the, the old department back in 2008 and moved back to Toronto full time. Uh, so, so moving from, from Florida, where it was actually kind of your... Your, um, you know, your, your junior hockey days were, you know, small staff, everybody's, everybody's pitching in where they can, mm -hmm. now coming back to uh, the major league club and, and big staff again, right? So, yeah. so what was the, kind of the size of the department? When, when well, uh, it was still large. I think, we, again, we were around 70, 75 people, big staff, not much had changed since I left in terms of uh, number of people, but part of the... Uh, the focus and vision going forward for the organization at large was to was to downsize. So for a lot of years, it's about get big, 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 big. Um, and uh, now again, the economy is not going so well, and and um, there were some cutbacks going on throughout all of Rogers and and some restructuring and all of that good stuff. And unfortunately, one of the very first tasks I had coming back is we had to within Rogers Media they had to, to let a lot of people go, and I had to let thirty three people go. Um, which was just terrible, terrible to go through. I mean, I understood it from a from a business. When you sit down and you look at why and, and where you're going to go from there, I, I get it. But to uh, just be back a couple of weeks and, and reconnecting with a bunch of friends, and most of those folks I actually hired to then have to let uh, almost half the department go was, was difficult. Um, but you learn from it. 
Um, you know, you go through change management, you, you adopt new philosophies, a new, um, you know, way you're going to approach revised metrics and whatnot. And, but again, I, I go back to these, have some manners, you know, watch your pitch and tone and be respectful of people. And I certainly had to use those skills when you had to look 33 people in the eye and say, uh, you're not going to be with the Toronto Blue Jays anymore. Yeah, that was tough. That was really, really tough and, and not a lot of fun. So, but we, we did it, we got through it. And, um, you know, um, ultimately the organization, uh, you know, was able to lift itself many years later after that, but that, that wasn't fun. I didn't, I did not enjoy that. Yeah. Um, so with, the, I guess just with the you know, revised, um, you know, staff structure and, and everything at that time you're coming back to, um, I mean, how, how did you kind of set the focus for, for the staff that were there? You know, obviously less staff, like you said, you had to re kind of mm-hmm. refocus targets and, and efforts and everything. Yeah, I think what was happening then, right around that same time, Paul Godfrey was uh, was leaving, and we were on the hunt for a new president and CEO. And uh, uh, a gentleman uh, that everyone was familiar with, Paul Beeston, was was tasked by Rogers to uh, to help uh, in the search to replace Paul Godfrey as a new president and CEO. And so, uh, while Paul Beeston was in the interim role, if you will, in terms of running the organization until we could find that replacement, uh, we as an organization, both on the field and off the field had a big uh, powwow, if you will, a, a big strategic meeting offsite, just really get a, a sense of, you know, the importance of on-field success falling in line with off-field success, that as we made changes on or off the field, we would do the same off the field, that as one rose, the other had to rise with it. Sounds rather simple, but it took a lot of deep thought, and so we really fundamentally, through Paul's leadership, um, how we were going to run the baseball side and the business side of the organization. So, you know, uh, targets, metrics, budgets changed, um, roles and responsibilities changed, um, made the decision to, you know, do a rebuild and the trading of Roy Halliday. And um, again, right around that time, JP Ricciardi was, uh, was leaving as GM and we were looking for a general manager. So a lot of change going on. And we knew that that was going to cause some angst in the marketplace. And with the unknown, we would be tough to sell tickets and corporate partnerships and all that. So we, we knew that. We dialed down the expectations and all of that. But I think ultimately when Paul Beeston realized that the best person to hire was himself after searching for about 12 months, and it turned out to be the absolute best hire for the organization, um, that we were all pretty clear on how Paul saw things going. And, and I remember words he shared with me. Actually, I'm going to back this up because this is an interesting story. <laughs> Uh, that, I, that I'd like to share. So Paul Beast and I knew of him only because of the great accomplishments he had during the glory years and was a legend and probably a Hall of Famer at some point in time. And uh, uh, we'd met maybe very, very briefly in the hallways, just a hi, how are you, but never really sat down and talked, similar to my Paul Godfrey story earlier. Mm-hmm. So uh, when when the Beast was, was taking over, he wanted to, to meet the various department heads, of which I was one now running ticketing. And so the uh, Sue Canal, his uh, his assistant, reached out and said, "Hey, Jason, Paul would like to just have a little intro. Hi, how are you? Meeting? Are you free at at three for five minutes?" And I said, "Yeah, sure. Look forward to it. Can't wait." So as three o'clock approached, I thought, "Well, okay, just a hi, how are you? Right, a minute out of there in ten minutes. You know, just have manners, shake the hands, make eye contact, and listen and learn and see what the vision is." And I'm going through all this, and I'm thinking, "What if it isn't five minutes? What if it's? What if he wants to know about?" ticket sales? What if he wants to know how many season ticket holders we have? What if he wants to know what the revenue trends have been the last 10 years? What if, what if he's got a whole bunch of questions for me? Nah, I don't, I don't think it's going to get that deep. It's five minutes. But before I left, I did 
scour through my my numbers and my notes and uh, took a mental snapshot of of kind of what's gone on the last ten years or so, if you will. And then I went to his office, and it started out very much as a hi, how are you? And are you married? Do you have kids? And where do you live? And it was great. And then then we got into it. Uh, so tell me about season ticket sales. And tell me about groups. And tell me about packs. And how many? And the trends. And why do we offer these benefits? And what's our rate of return? And it was we got right into it. And I thank God that uh, this lesson in being prepared uh, is very important. I thank God I was prepared. I mean, I didn't have anything on me, but uh, I took some time to just go through it all in my head. And so that five-minute meeting lasted about three and a half hours. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, uh, which in hindsight was amazing. I think he and I, well, I always had respect for him, but I think what I was able to demonstrate over those three-plus hours was I kind of knew where I was coming from. I knew what I talked about. I was able to share why we did certain things that might not have made a ton of sense, why we ballooned to 75 people, uh, you know, while while the team wasn't necessarily performing as well as it liked and, you know, why we were spending as much as we were on benefits uh, and not increasing ticket prices to fall in line with that. And I think uh, it was an eye-opener for him just to get a really good sense of why we were doing things and and why we were celebrating those 5% lifts and 6% lifts. And thank God, because about two weeks after that meeting, there were some additional department leaders that were, were let go that uh, might not have necessarily fit uh, with Paul and his uh, vision for going forward. So I'm very thankful I took those five minutes to really get myself prepared because it served me well. And uh, as, as I would tell anyone listening out there, you can never be too prepared. Yeah. The, the most simplest, innocent uh, interaction could could make or break you. You know what I mean? So... Uh, being prepared was was great, and uh, again, similar to Paul Godfrey, I developed instant respect for Paul Beeston, and um, again today consider him a very good friend and someone I can go to at any point in time, and he'll always pick up the phone. And just a tremendous, tremendous person that I worked with for uh, geez, um, 2009 until he retired in 15. I guess so a good good six year run or so with with Paul. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about the the Jays is you were you were there during the team's rebrand kind of the the return to the original kind of branding Mm -hmm. um from an outsider's perspective anyways it kind of felt like like a switch went off and then all of a sudden for lots of people that maybe didn't consider themselves diehard blue jays fans or Mm -hmm. didn't grow up fans all of a sudden going to the 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 stadium and taking in a game in the summer became the really cool thing to do um just you know yeah. The insider's perspective. What yeah. was that like kind of working there? At I, that time? I think Paul Paul kept things really, really simple. And I think when he came back and he'd seen what, what the Blue Jays meant to Toronto and meant, meant to Canada, for that matter, when we were winning championships, uh, and it really, to him, it, be, it became about baseball. It became about the team. It became about the sport. Um, and so his energy and his efforts, and by this time, Alex, and he had brought Alex on board or promoted Alex from assistant GM to GM, it was about baseball, and he would, you know, he'd say to us heading up the business units, just sit tight. We've got to get this baseball thing right. We've got to get the right uniform again. I don't like the black. I don't like the angry bird, as he used to call it. We're the blue jays. We need a blue jay on there, and, and, and blue and white always worked. And the red maple leaf has got to come back on the uniform. It's about baseball. It's about baseball in this country. We've got to do the caravan in the winter. We've got to take our players and our organization coast to coast and celebrate baseball. We have to engage with amateur baseball at the grassroots level. We need an amateur program. Um, you know, we need to have a baseball day in Canada during the season. It's about baseball. We've got to get baseball right. 
once baseball's right, and it's more than just winning and losing games, it's about investing in the sport in this country. If we can get that right, then all you guys over here on the business side, you'll all benefit. So let's get baseball right. So, you know, trade Halliday, get some prospects, hire a great GM in Alex Anthopoulos who's got a great mind for things. Um, and they started figuring out how to get baseball right. A little bit of drafting. Um, we're growing the sport at the grassroots level again. In the winter, we're engaged with the marketplace. And he used to look at me and say, and I would make recommendations for that season in terms of prices and products and benefits. And he'd say to me, your job is to get this place wired the right way so that when we win and we're filling it again, that we're bringing in enough revenue to sustain a championship payroll. So get it wired the right way because we are going to win and things will take off. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or next year, but it's going to happen. Get this place wired the right way to support a top 10, top 5 payroll once again so that we can keep this winning going on and on and on because when the team wins, the revenues are going to come with it. So and it was really that. And so I tried to dissect what that meant exactly <laughs> and, and do that. Um, but once they got baseball right, once, you know, once we got a taste for it, once we were getting close, once we were getting around to September and kind of being in the hunt, uh, once we were seeing more than 6 or 7% increases, we started seeing 10 and 15 and 20% increases, we were getting there and we had momentum and people were going to games again and people were talking about it at the bars again and you saw hats, the, the blue, I mean, once we rebranded that uniform, there was Blue Jay stuff everywhere and it was great to see and it was all about get baseball right again. So, so that was the focus. You know, it really was the focus on the rebound and the relaunch was really about we've got to get this team right. We've got to figure out how to get over the hump and win. And uh, it starts with just engaging and investing in the game of baseball in this country while Alex was doing his thing. And then uh, guess what happened? We traded for David Price and Troy Tulowitzki. And uh, after, you know, that's what, 2015, uh, after for me 16 years, of grinding with the organization, uh, grinding season ticket sales and any tickets we could sell. What an unbelievable experience it was to watch the team, quote unquote, go for it and grab marquee players one after another over a three, four day stretch and the absolute euphoria that went on in this market. And we could not keep up. I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, we're 30 people in the department now and we were selling 50,000 tickets a day a day. Games were just selling out. Now, again, this is end of July when this happened, right? July 31st, so we only had two months of games left, so what, maybe another 21, 22 games in the season at home? And then within, oh God, maybe two weeks, all remaining games were sold out. Like it was 50,000 tickets a day. Whether we were playing at home or on the road, it was just the business we were doing was 50,000 a day. And to put that in context, at that time of year, we would normally do maybe 3,000 tickets a day. So it was just incredible. And of course, we go on that run. We win the East. Uh, and for the first time, I've actually had to, we had to figure out how to sell postseason tickets and work with Major League Baseball on setting prices for that and taking their feedback. I mean, ultimately, Major League Baseball controls all of that. You make recommendations, they have to stamp uh, their approval on all of that. But to actually go through that with my team, and a lot of us had been there a lot of years, and to finally experience uh, what it's like to win and to be able to just sell tickets off the shelf with no problem uh, and to see the excitement from our fans. And a lot of season ticket holders we'd built relationships with for a lot of years to say, finally, it was tremendous. So that was, 
that was great. And so I remember, you know, once those 22 games sold out or whatever, and we looked at what that revenue looked like, I looked at Paul and I said, did I get the place wired the right way? I mean, are we where we need to be? And he said, yeah, 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 you did. We're, we're in a good spot. And so, you know, and then we got to go through it again in 16. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I was always curious, if you get in the playoffs, how much of a benefit will that be for sales for the following year? I knew it would be good. I knew it would be significant. But, uh, you know, to, to sell 20,000 season seats or so before a season even begins uh, was just unbelievable. So, you know, it just shows that this market uh, is a baseball market, will rally behind the team uh, when they think they see, uh, you know, equal passion coming from, from ownership and management to, to really invest in winning. And it was, uh, it was a tremendous, tremendous two seasons to go through that. I'm just very, very thankful that my career with the Jays ended on, on such a high because it really was. It was, it was unbelievable. A good segue into a question I, you know, just kind of on the broader topic of ticketing that, that I did want to ask you. You know, you mentioned, you know, the playoff run helping with season tickets the following season. Um, I know we, we found working with, you know, a few of our, our properties that the, the season ticket um, as, a, as a product has really changed um, in what feels like the last few years, but maybe maybe it's been a trend mm-hmm. a little bit longer. But wh- where do you see season tickets going? Do you see them... Are they, is it just maybe a bit of a downturn? Are they going to make a resurgence? Or you know, some people are saying that that full season ticket for an individual maybe is just yeah. those days are gone. Yeah, people consume sports a lot differently, don't they now? Yeah. You know, certainly uh, from when I started in the industry in the late 90s. I mean, we were one of the first teams in the early 2000s to offer, uh, not only offer a, a mini plan, something less than a full season, but also to have a flex component to it. Remember, we go to Major League Baseball industry meetings and say, you know, we've got a... 20 game flex pack and a 15 game flex pack and what do you mean by flex means they can pick any 15 or 20 they choose really and I think it was important to acknowledge that you know society was changing and you know this whole idea of everyone being busy was was becoming apparent and you know setting having a conversation in November and having someone to commit to 81 games when they don't know what their kids sports schedules are like or when their vacation is going to be is that the idea of having some degree of flexibility was important to introduce uh, introduce and and we did and I think as time marches on, you know, and I think another thing that we did that we were a little ahead of the curve of, of is, is the idea of a, of a year-long membership. I remember we, uh, in the mid-2000s, we engaged in some external partnerships with like Mervish Productions uh, and down in Dunedin where we tried to provide 12 months of benefits. So six months were baseball games and the other six months we tried to make sure there was an event every one of those six months. So with Mervish, it was theater tickets were included and February or in March, we'd send you down to Florida to as a benefit for being a season ticket holder. So we, this idea of trying to people engaged over 12 months was something we tried to get in front of. But, uh, you know, I think with technology the way it is now, with the value uh, placed on, on streaming of games um, and how people can consume and watch it, be it on a tablet or a phone or on 60-inch high-def televisions, the live experience um, hasn't been quite become quite as important to people and I think the w- statistics being as readily available as they are I mean you're engaged with the team and you want season tickets but you just can't make it happen um, I can get all the inform- information from last night's game in real time or as soon as I wake up the next morning I mean to to the to the smallest minutiae I can know everything about it almost like I was there but I wasn't and I think the one benefit if you've got a, a team that you know it plays in a venue where you're at near capacity I think there is a different feel when you're in a full house um, whether you win or lose, but just having a full house and the energy that goes along with it um, is still unique and is still needed and is still valued. 
Um, the challenge is, is if you, and not many people are in that position. You're not, you know, you're not always winning. You're not always in a full venue, and therefore the environment isn't quite the same. But yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I think you know if you look at revenue streams for teams. I mean, and it may be in in a lot of cases today. You know, the greatest internal revenue source you have is ticket sales. But I think the kind of money that teams are are, are uh, attracting now through you know their their media rights. Um, social media engagement uh, and the dollars are coming there that I guess teams are becoming a little less reliant on ticket revenue. Therefore, um, you know, season tickets aren't quite as important as they used to be. Um, and, and, and I know in Major League Baseball, a lot of the local TV deals are just are, are significant. Uh, the Dodgers and the Texas Rangers, the amount of money they're making for their local Fox Sports broadcast deals are significant. And I know a lot of teams that we're in rebuilds, and I think at Tampa once, I mean, they didn't really need to sell one single ticket all year long, and they're still going to, you know, at least break even, if not more, because of that that one revenue stream. So so I think it's changed. I think it's evolved. I think we just live in a, a busy, busy world, a busy, busy society, and information is readily available just by snapping our fingers. And so, you know, people have to realize how important is that live experience. And you've seen new stadiums being built now that have all of the, all of the, uh, I guess the amenities is structured in a such a way that you can rest your tablet there and get your stats as you're watching it or, or have meeting areas or common areas. The millennials and how they like to interact and be social, not necessarily tied to one area and like to get up and wander because they're busy and uh, their lives uh, can change on a day-to-day basis and they need that flexibility. I think you see a lot of stadiums um, wiring themselves in such a way to accommodate that, that new fan base. Uh, so another trend that's that's been talked about a lot in the news uh, recently is just you know the the accountability I guess around ticket ownership and how tickets can be transferred uh, between people on the secondary market and just you know if I buy the ticket being able to verify I bought the ticket and, and things like that. Just, where do you I guess where do you see the relationship between you know primary sellers, the teams, and then the secondary market going? Yeah, I think uh, so. It's. You know, I think there's, there was three camps. You know, I remember talking about the secondary market, resellers and things of that nature. I remember as Major League Baseball, you know, we'd meet at least once a year, and I always found like teams were in three camps. One was, you know, we embrace the secondary market, we'll engage with those resellers, and we'll work with them because they do represent significant revenue to us. And then there's other teams that we don't like them, we don't want to do any business with them, we want them out the door, and if we find out who they are, we'll never not sell a ticket to them again. And then there's others that are in the middle saying, I'm not sure which camp I'm in, but I'm in a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. I think at the end of the day, I think teams realize how important data is. And so you want to know who the end user is of your ticket. And I think once you've got your your primary contact and he in turn rolls it over to, uh, to a secondary contact or something, you want to be able to get that person's information as well as the next. And, you know, and you don't want... I mean, ultimately, whatever that ticket's going for in the marketplace will will reflect the brand, the Blue Jay brand. So, you know, you've set your price, but if that price is going for twice that in the market, people are going to, there's a certain market of that segment uh, Segment will, will say, well, geez, the Blue Jays are getting a little aggressive with this stuff. In fact, that we're not charging those prices. So it's a tricky one. I think the, the secondary market uh, um, is fluid. And I think, uh, obviously, they do a good job at what they do. And I think with StubHub now being, um, you know, doing deals with Major League Baseball and clubs within Major League Baseball, I think teams are realizing uh, it's out there. We can't kind of get away from it. So let's just make sure that we're getting as much a piece of the pie as, as it relates to secondary market data and revenue uh, that we can because it's something that doesn't seem to be going away. Um, so I think just kind of one maybe final kind of wrap-up question. Um, 
so you spend you know a lot of time around the Rogers Center in, in, in your career. Um, is there a favorite part of the stadium that you have that maybe you know the average fan doesn't really get mm-hmm. to see? Great question. Well, I always love it when the roofs open, as most people do. But uh, what did I love about the stadium? That's a great, great question, Ev. I think. I think I always got a kick of walking in the front doors in the Blue Jays' offices and seeing the World Series trophies every day. Yeah. I think that's pretty special. I think to see that hardware, to see awards the club has won, I think that's I think that's a lot of fun. Um, it never it never got old on me. You know what I mean? It never got old on me. Uh, but you know, I just loved I loved being in the pit. I loved just getting in the office and amongst people that are. Uh, given a solid eight every day on the phones and and moving revenue for the team and the trials and tribulations that go along with it. But uh, uh, so I love that environment. But at the end of the day, just getting off the Gardner Expressway and going north on Spadina and then east on Bremner, and knowing that they're paying me to do this, I'm going to this stadium every single day. Uh, it's a great feeling, and it was the same thing, you know, just to go all the way back to those you know, mid-90s in junior hockey to go to a hockey rink every single day to earn a living is special and something I never took for granted and um, uh, and quite frankly was a dream come true. If you can't play the game, if you can work in the game, uh, there's no other place I'd want to be. So that was an absolute thrill. Well, great. Well, Jason, thanks thanks very much for taking the time. Appreciate uh, you joining the, the podcast. Today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. A very special thanks to Jason for joining me on the podcast this week. Loved the stories he shared and felt like we could have kept talking for hours, so hopefully we can convince him to come back for round two. Let us know what you think. You can email us at info at cosmosports.com. Remember, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Cosmos podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're planning on having an episode every Wednesday. If you really liked what you heard, we'd very much appreciate a rating or a review. And if you're looking for some more insight on sports business in Canada, you can also check out our blog at cosmosports.com blog or our monthly newsletter at cosmosports.com newsletter. My name is Evan Colborn. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you soon.